0: Hello, everybody. Hi, it's me, Eddie Hurst, and welcome to Eddie Hurst podcast version of the War of the Worlds. God, it feels good to say that, doesn't it? It's starting series two, here we are. How long's it been? Well, to regular listeners, it will have been about uh six months, maybe a little more. To new listeners, it will have been less. And to people who were listening before the show started, uh, good. how? 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 But all right. I mean, what I'm saying is time is relative. And to many of you, you might just be joining us today. In which case, allow me to explain the premise of this podcast. This is where me, Eddie Hurst, and I'm joined by comedy guests, I'm joined by musical comedy guests, I'm joined by experts in academic fields. (laughs) Why? I don't know, but they've agreed to come on. Uh, And we we all have a chat about H.G. Wells' version of The War of the Worlds. We talk about other versions of it as well, because it it, it permeates through society ever since its publication in 1897. I just had to go away and check that to to make sure that... I was not giving... you lackluster information and let me tell you i am pleased to announce that i got it right the first time there's no need to waste this aside here so what's been going on for this uh, six months you ask well i've been busy cooking up book two getting in touch with guests getting uh lots of nice surprises for you doing plenty of deep dives of research as well that you'll hear one of today uh, i've also been doing some videos some other musical comedy business which you can see on my twitter on my instagram on my facebook it's Uh, At Eddie Hurst, E-D-Y-H-U-R-S-T Or uh, forward slash Eddie Hurst Whichever of those takes your fancy This episode, we are doing things a little different I thought, let's give something a new try You know, that's what I'm always trying to do with this Podcast is a new way to reinterpret something That's already been reinterpreted time and time again And so, I decided for this one to invite our friend My friend, maybe your friend I don't know if if you know him Maybe you do That might be why you're listening Because he's a guest on it It's Tom Burgess as we know as the curate uh, from previous chapters, he's come on and and we've actually read the chapter together, so you've got little asides between me and him, so let me know what you think about that Uh, you can get in touch on the addies that I've said before, and also on my website I've got contact form there so let's get into it, look, I'll talk a little bit later, but please, please, please rate, review, share this with your friends, I'm talking five stars I'm talking, I like this a lot this is good, get the word out this is the second series, and let's get it bash it let's bash it let's, let's bash it that's what i wanted bash it that's uh, is that a phrase i don't know i've said it now if somebody reviews it and says uh this podcast bashes it i would um i'd be over the moon i could not explain to you how how delighted i would be at that anyway without further ado here we go book two THE EARTH UNDER THE MARTIANS CHAPTER ONE UNDERFOOT Oh, I've
1: got something on my foot. Oh, humans, so disgusting. Just wipe it off on of
0: those house over there. In the first book, I have wandered so much from my own adventures to tell of the experiences of my brother that all through the last two chapters, I and the curate have been lurking in the empty house at Haliford, Whither we fled to escape the black smoke. I, l- I like that he introduces back to the two main characters. Currently, uh, lurking—that's
1: how he describes lurking.
0: How am I going to win? Lurking. How am I going to win over the readers? You want
1: a couple of sympathetic characters, so let's make them seem as sinister as possible. Uh, lurking in a in a basement.
0: There, I will resume. We stopped there all Sunday night and all the next day, the day of the panic, in a little island of daylight, cut off by the black smoke from the rest of the world. We could do nothing but wait in aching inactivity during those two weary days. My mind was occupied by anxiety for my wife. I figured her at Leatherhead, terrified, in danger, mourning me already as a dead man. I paced the rooms and cried aloud when I thought of how cut off I was from her of all that might happen to her in my absence. My cousin I knew was brave enough for any emergency, but he was not the sort of man to realise danger quickly, to rise promptly. What he's saying is, he's a fucking moron. What was needed now was not bravery, but circumspection. My only consolation was to believe that the Martians were moving Londonward and away from her. Such vague anxieties kept my mind sensitive and painful. I grew very wary and irritable with the curate's perpetual ejaculations. Mm. I tired of the sight of his selfish despair. Uh, this is a perfect, uh, perfect time to put in my, uh, my jingle for the things we need to do. Which, of course, ejaculations um, in Victorian times uh, would, would have meant more just making a random noise. Than it sure would have meant, it uh, did, Eddie, sure. But I love that he's annoyed. Like, so the narrator's going round. Crying aloud in his house, and yet when
1: somebody else has their own thing going on, all of a sudden that's like really like oh his perpetual ejaculations. Yeah, suddenly I I tired of the sight of his selfish despair. What about mine?
0: <laughs> After some ineffectual remonstrance, I kept away from him, staying in a room, evidently a children's school room, containing globes, forms, and copybooks. When he followed me thither, I went to a box room at the top of the house, and, in order to be alone with my aching miseries, locked myself in.
2: Lock myself
0: in my room to be alone with my misery.
2: Nobody understands, but these martians are scary.
0: We were hopelessly hemmed in by the black smoke all that day and the morning of the next. There were signs of people in the next house on Sunday evening, a face at the window and moving lights, and later the slamming of a door. But I do not know who these people were, nor what became of them. We saw nothing of them the next day. The black smoke drifted slowly Riverford all through Monday morning, creeping nearer and nearer to us driving at last along the roadway outside the house that hid us. A Martian came across the fields about midday, laying the stuff with a jet of superheated steam that hissed against the walls, smashed all the windows it touched, and scolded the curate's hand as he fled out of the front room. When at last we crept across the sodden rooms and looked out again, the country northward was as though a black snowstorm had passed over it. Looking towards the river we were astonished to see an unaccountable redness mingling with the black of the scorched meadows.
1: You know what, I think unaccountable redness is my favourite shade in the Dulux catalogue. I love it.
0: For a time, we did not see how this change affected our position. Save that we were relieved of our fear of the black smoke. But later, I perceived that we were no longer hemmed in. That now we might get away. So as soon as I realised that the way of escape was open, my dream of action returned. But the curate was lethargic. Unreasonable.
1: We are safe here.
0: He repeated.
1: Safe here.
0: I resolved to leave him. Would that I had.
1: I wonder if he is warming to the curate. He's finally, they're finally starting to get on, aren't they?
0: Wiser now for the artilleryman's teaching, I sought out food and drink. I'd found oil and rags for my burns. And I also took a hat and a flannel shirt I found in one of the bedrooms. When it was clear to him that I meant to go alone, had reconciled myself to going alone, he suddenly roused himself to come, and all being quiet throughout the afternoon, we started about five o'clock, as I should judge, along the blackened road to Sunbury. In Sunbury, and at intervals along the road, were dead bodies lying in contorted attitudes, horses as well as men, overturned carts and luggage, all covered thickly with black dust, That pall of scintry powder made me think of what I had read of the destruction of Pompeii.
2: Day 65 in this arctic research hut and finally I feel like I'm making progress, unravelling the mystery of who I am, why I keep getting remade and reprogram- Oh, hello, it's me, the explaining lad. Uh, what was it, Pompeii. Oh, yes, of course, Pompeii is a town that's part of ancient Rome. It has long been since abandoned because of it being at the bottom of a volcano called Vesuvius that famously erupted in 79 AD, covering the town and killing the people in a thick soot and ash, It's a common misconception that actually the lava is the problem with volcano but it's it's this plume of of molten hot dust that solidifies so you can actually go there as a tourist if you're interested in lurking around some dead bodies i mean it's a bit morbid isn't it anyway that's what uh, hg wells means when he refers to pompeii he's not just referring to the town which i'm sure was fine in its heyday he's talking about the the attack and how the soot just as similar to what you're seeing there. He's painting a picture with words. Anyway, I've got to go back to my research. Why? Why am I an enigma?
0: We got to Hampton Court without misadventure, our minds full of strange and unfamiliar appearances. And at Hampton Court, our eyes were relieved to find a patch of green that had escaped the suffocating drift. We went through Bushy Park, with its deer going to and fro under the chestnuts, and some men and women hurrying in the distance towards Hampton. And so we came to Twickenham. These were the first people we saw. Away across the road, the woods beyond Ham and Petersham were still afire. I mean, it's worth... I I do really want to mention that there is a place called Ham, which I think is the most English name for a town. I like that it's differentiated.
1: There's Ham and there's Peter's Ham. (laughs) Yes, don't you dare eat... This ham is for everyone. Everyone who's been listed in the census. This is Peter's alone. If you touch it, my friend, they'll be hell to pay. <laughs> there's Peter's ham.
0: There's Lewis'
1: ham.
2: <laughs>
0: there's pecking. There's ham that you can only peck at. That's pecking ham.
1: That's just for the birds. Just for the birds. eat the birds. Ham. Ham. a ham.
0: <laughs> Twickenham was uninjured by either heat ray or black smoke. And there were more people about it though none could give us news. For the most part, they were like ourselves, taking advantage of a lull to shift their quarters. I have an impression that many of the houses here were still occupied by scared inhabitants, too frightened even for flight. Here, too, the evidence of a hasty route was abundant along the road. I remember most vividly three smashed bicycles in a heap, pounded into the road by wheels of subsequent carts. Uh, it's probably him smashing them bikes, wasn't it? Because he, uh, he can't ride a bike, can he? I'll be honest with you, yeah, yeah.
1: No, it would probably be. Yeah, I thought you'd bring that up. I cannot ride a bike, and I would, I would smash any bicycle I saw, and I will leave them in a heap as well. I want them to look like like a mangled mess.
0: <laughs> it's just one car that the narrator is pushed over backwards and forwards over the. Bike. <laughs> we crossed Richmond Bridge about half past eight. We hurried across the exposed bridge, of course. But I noticed floating down the stream a number of red masses, some many feet across. I did not know what these were. There was no time for scrutiny, and I put a more horrible interpretation on them than they deserved. They were horrible, ugly, bad breath, rude. Here again on the Surrey side were black dust that had once been smoke and dead bodies, a heap near the approach to the station. But we had no glimpse of the Martians until we were some way towards Barnes. We saw in the blackened distance a group of three people running down a side street towards the river. But otherwise it seemed deserted. Up the hill, Richmond Town was burning briskly. Outside the town of Richmond, there was no trace of black smoke. So they're in London now, uh, in Richmond. That well, was
1: quick. Well done. Well done. That was very quick.
0: Just saying they had a nice little jolly over at Hampton Court and now they're in now they're in old foggy London town. They
1: barely did anything at Hampton Court, did they? It feels like a waste of a trip. Might have got a postcard or something. Especially if if for once you can get in for free because everyone's dead, you know. Pop it. Look around. Mess around with some of the stuff, see if anyone notices when they come back.
0: But optimistic at this point. That's an optimism that the narrator doesn't have. The the um he can muck around with something as a little jape.
1: There's none of that blitz spirit, is there? In the blitz, we were all pranking each other because we didn't the <laughs> bit. I kept hiding my friend's gas mask. It was great.
0: Then suddenly, as we approached Q, came a number of people running and the upper works of a Martian fighting machine loomed in sight over the housetops, not a hundred yards away from us. We stood aghast at our danger and had the Martian look down we must immediately have perished. We were so terrified that we dared not go on, but turned aside and hidden a shed in a garden. There the curate crouched, weeping silently, and refusing to stir again. Look, we spend spent a lot of time talking about the curate. His brain, his fears, his loves, his passions, his bod. He's a more fleshed out character than Mrs. Narrator. You know, the whole purpose of travelling around in this book. But if your first introduction to War of the Worlds Like Me was through the movies, the musical or the Orson Welles radio drama, chances are that this guy with his wussy mad attitude is a character you've probably not seen in any of the other adaptations. If you have seen some sort of curate or a signee to the God Squad during the times of Martians, you might be aware of Parson Nathaniel in Jeff Wayne's musical version of the War of the Worlds, a rock and roll preacher with the voice of Phil Linnett and no one else. Come at me with that new generation Jason Donovan. Hashtag, not my parson Nathaniel. Or maybe, you know, Pastor Dr. Uncle Father Matthew Collins from the George Powell-produced 1953 Cold War-vibe movie. I might have added um, two, two of those titles to Pastor Dr. Uncle Father Matthew Collins. And in the Spielberg film, uh, and the Orson Welles radio show, actually, there isn't even any religious body that takes part in the story. I mean, unless you count Tom Cruise and, and his Scientology stuff, I mean... That that would have been a shoo-in, right? There's loads of mythology about aliens in there. It'd been perfect fit. So what gives? Why does the role of the curate seem so interchangeable? And like olives on a pizza, only good for removing. I mean, I guess there's a lot of possible answers. The changing role of religion in society, different audiences perceiving offence, and just how much there is of the story you need to cram into that sometimes maybe a whingy clergyman that finds themselves stuck in a scullery is surplus to requirements. But I thought I'd take a look through some of the tentpole adaptations at how and why the curate changes so much. And like that, I mean like big cultural adaptations, not like adaptations of tentpoles. I don't know if anyone has adapted them. I mean, what, like, what would it be, a sharpened stick? That's sort of you adapting to the situation of, of no tentpoles, I don't I don't think that's adapting the concept of a tentpole. Look, I think at this point you've been willfully misconstruing of my words here. Firstly, the book. The fair weakness of curls and pale eyes. The curate. Now, we already know from previous chapters that the curate is like an assistant member of the religious community. But we don't really know why he's written as such a wimp. What, What's his redeeming characteristic? He's aware he wants to clear his brain. I guess one reason is probably that, as we have gathered, old Herbie G. doesn't much like the curate. And this is probably because, and this may come as a real shock, Wells wasn't a big fan of Christianity. Whoa, my love man! Whether it's in his own autobiography, where he says, I never had hated God so intensely, and then suddenly the light broke through to me, and I knew this God was... Was a lie. <laughs> That's uh, Herbert George. Just keeping it light there, at the tender age of eleven, or in nearly all his predictions for the future, where he specifically chucks religion out of all society. You know, he's he's like the opposite of George Michael, like, because George Michael was all about, you know, he's like you had to have faith. Do you get? And so H. G. Wells doesn't. Hello, he doesn't think you should have faith. So it's no surprise that as we're reading a book that is as much Wells' reflections on society in crisis as it is an alien invasion, he's going to chuck a few jabs about religion on the way. It's kind of his thing. And of course, as we all know, organised religion crumbled away following his scathing attack, never to return or play a role in our lives again. It's worth noting that at the time Wells was writing, this was a pretty radical view to have, according to records of the time, Around half of the British population would go to church every Sunday. Not to mention the involvement in community activities that church was involved with. Um, Living in the UK, uh, there's loads of community halls and things that are are run and owned by churches, so there is a connection to the society there. Look, all I'm saying is that there was enough village biz at the time that it wouldn't be unusual for a community to not only have a priest, but supporting clergy like the curate. They had churches in the same way we have Costa Coffees and Starbucks. They're good for going in and having a read of a book. They didn't have any coffee. Fast forward to 1938, and we're at the Mercury Radio Theatre with Orson Welles. No relation. Now, when you talk about Orson Welles' radio show, most people will know it as the play that tricked America into losing their minds. There was riots. There was calling the police. It's often referred to as the first ever fake news story. Do you remember fake news? Hey, hey. Fake news. Do you remember that. However, what is actually the fake news is the the story is the story of the fake news because there wasn't really any significant outcry at the time. Instead, a newspaper's response sensationalised it into the history books. I mean, you can go into loads of detail about how Randolph Hearst had it in for Orson Wells, and then Orson Wells would make Citizen Kane as a response to that, and blah, blah, blah. Suffice to say that there was a newspaper that wanted to sell papers, and so decided to make this a bigger story than it was, which is absolutely a strange and unfamiliar thing that we have no experience of in this day and age. And much like there being no actual panic following the broadcast, there was also no curate or a reverend, or a priest, or any religious person in the play. So... It's a good job that I had that tidbit beforehand to cover up the complete lack of anything relevant right here, eh? Maybe it is worth thinking, why is there not a religious element in this? Because this is one of the most famous adaptations, and it's kind of hard to say. Like, religion played a big part in the lives of many Americans, especially after the Second World War, and possibly, actually, increased with the introduction of radio broadcasting preachers. So maybe they thought that like a radio play in the style of a news broadcast, it wouldn't be believable, if there was a religious body there during the reporting, or maybe they just didn't have enough time in under an hour to cram everything in, or maybe it's to do with Orson Welles himself. He was quite a, quite a quiet man when it came to his religious beliefs. Um, he, he sort of kept them to himself, and they didn't it didn't really play a massive role in a lot of his work. All we know is that the broadcast didn't cause the mass panic and hysteria previously reported. Whoa, my blue man! Next. 1953's War of the Worlds where not only is there a religious fella, this guy is a SCIENTIST! Back off man, I'm a scientist. Pastor Doctor Matthew Collins plays a very different role from that of the curate. He's kind of like a combo of Ogilvy the astronomer as a scientist too, but with the added medical doctor compassion. He's the only guy with the courage to just crack open a tinny and chat with the martians, Mano E. Marshall, about their hopes, and dreams. And sure, he gets obliterated. I mean, obviously he does. He's just walked up with a pint of Foster's to a Martian. But it's more a sign of the cruelty of the Martians than it is the naivety of men as it is shown in the book. Being a post-war US, it's safe to say that in the 60 years between the book publishing and the film being released, a lot culturally has changed. The ideological fight between religion and science that was there in the Victorian times has, at least for a short time, gone a slumber. You know, back when Wells was studying evolution, back when Wells was studying, evolution was having a big kickoff with the church. Whereas in the 1950s most people were just trembling at the shattering nuclear discoveries of science. Plus, it's a Hollywood movie, uh, baby! Where in the 1950s you definitely couldn't make a big glitzy movie that slams on the church. I mean, what are you, A, a damn, damn pinko, pinko commie? No way buddy, you gotta believe in those good honest, red-blooded American family values with its conservative views and its modern domestic appliances the only way they know how, by adapting a book by a famously outspoken atheist socialist who had a very tumultuous family life. I mean, personally, I think the best version of the curate is far and away Parson Nathaniel from Jeff Wayne's musical version of The War of the Worlds. Parson? That's a fun name. There's Parson Nathaniel. Parson Brown, you know, the talking snowman from walking in a winter wonderland. They're great! Who doesn't like a parson? this guy isn't some nervous Purvis, Nathaniel's gone completely nuts after seeing the face of the devil. I saw the devil sign! It's a rock opera, so it makes sense that you go for more of a rock singer style for it, but you could also see it making a critique of religion in its own way. You know, in the 1960s and 70s, a lot of fundamental Christians weren't keen on the perceived free love and hedonism of rock and roll. They probably got a bit riled up about when the Beatles were saying they were bigger than Jesus. Not even the biggest Jesus in the band. So Wayne could have set up the parson in this very fundamental reading of the situation, as a caricature of these radical members of Christianity that had been harshing the mellows of rockers. That'll teach you to harsh my mellow man! Or it was just a way to get more rock songs into it. I mean, not sure how badass you can make a song about being trapped and sad in a scullery, maybe we'll find out later in the podcast! Lastly, let's take a look at the Spielberg War of the Worlds in 2005. Or maybe let's not, as yet again there's not really much of a curate in it. Not even a deacon. Or or a push, a communion tea lady. I don't think she's even in the extras. So rather than being in lockdown with a nervous man of God, Tim Robbins steps into the shoes of a creepy conspiracy theorist to host Tom Cruise and Dakota Fanning. He's basically a big amalgamation of a bunch of characters, and not a single one of them with the manners to throw their hands up in the air and thank the Lord. In many ways, this film is a way of Spielberg to reflect on and represent a post 9-11 America which Christianity plays a part in, but alongside multiple other religions. Spielberg himself is Jewish, and it would definitely seem a bit weird for a film based in New Jersey, being a semi-allegory of a terrorist attack on one of the most multicultural cities in the world, to have a huge chunk of it dedicated to either dunking on or celebrating the Christian church. Not even the biggest Jesus in the band. So, to wrap things up, Wells had beef with the church on a personal and ideological level, and as he was a single-soul creative viewpoint, he could use his platform to create a character that displayed the aspects of the church he wasn't fond of. Orson Welles didn't really have enough time to meditate on religion during his prank but not really prank and as an individual didn't really discuss religion in his oeuvre seeing it as a personal thing. George Pal and his 1953 movie did the complete opposite of what Welles did to stick to the old fashioned American values of the 50s. And Spielberg was working in a time when if you mention religion, it's more likely to be about radical extremism than it is about an ineffectual and nervous pastor trapped in a basement. Alright? I hope this one helps anyone using this to cheat on their GCSEs slash A level. I mean, the idea that you're using this is... Wow. I feel bad for you. And to anybody else, I hope it adds a little more depth into the book. And if it doesn't do any of them, well, screw you, pal! Well, why don't you make your own podcast? See, I've been busting my hump over here, trying my best to think of interesting deep dives to bring more information in this book to you, to try and elevate it from audiobooks, which you can get from anywhere else. And I'm just trying it here to do something different and unique and you keep throwing it back in my face. Let's get back to the book. But my fixed idea of reaching Leatherhead would not let me rest. And in the twilight, I ventured out again. I went through a shrubbery, and along a passage beside a big house standing in its own ground, and so emerged upon the road towards Kew. The curate I left in the shed, but he came hurrying after me.
1: Well, one time he's actually tried to get away from him and it hasn't worked. That's so awkward, isn't Call it? him the boomerang, because he always comes back. It, yeah, a boomerang, but he's never actually tried throwing him away. <laughs> and that's, that's where he keeps going wrong.
0: That second start was the most foolhardy thing I ever did for it was manifest the Martians were about us. No sooner had the curate overtaken me than we saw either the fighting machine we had seen before or another far away across the meadows in the direction of Kew Lodge. Four or five little black figures hurried before it across the green grey of the field, and in a moment it was evident that this Martian pursued them. In three strides he was amongst them, and they ran radiating from his feet in all directions. He used no heat ray to destroy them, but picked them up one by one. Apparently, he tossed them into the great metallic carrier which projected behind him, much as the workman's basket hangs over his shoulder. It was the first time I realised that the Martians might have another purpose than destruction with defeated humanity. We stood for a moment, petrified, then turned and fled through a gate behind us into a walled garden, fell into, rather than found, a fortunate ditch.
1: Fortunate ditch. That's a great title for a song. <laughs> a fortunate Ditch. God, imagine if they'd found an unfortunate ditch. That would have been a shame. Uh, fortune, fortune is in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? That ditch was never fortunate before they turned up. My granddad had a fortunate ditch. He was a doctor in the Second World War, and he got shot at by a plane in what I consider to be a Nazi prank. And he jumped <laughs> into, uh, into a ditch to keep himself safe. And then he started, after he, it was all clear... He, uh, he started walking down the road uh, and realised that he'd lost his glasses in the ditch and he had to just crawl back for ages in this ditch and look for these specks. That sounds like an unfortunate ditch. Well, yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a half and a half, wasn't it? So it just can, cancels itself out because yeah, it's a, a ditch. That's it's just, just, a just, ditch, a, in it. just a ditch. But yeah, actually, now I think of it, yeah, he, he just, uh, now I think of it, he did used to say, yes, and then I fell into this just completely standard ditch
0: and lay there. "'scarce daring to whisper to each other until the stars were out. "'I suppose it was nearly eleven o'clock before we gathered courage to start again, "'no longer venturing into the road, but sneaking along hedgerows and through plantations, "'and watching keenly through the darkness, he on the right and I on the left, "'for the Martians, who seemed to be all about us. "'In one place we blundered upon a scorched and blackened area, "'now cooling and ashen, and a number of scattered dead bodies of men... (laughs) burned horribly about the heads and trunks but with their legs and boots mostly intact, and of dead horses, fifty feet perhaps, behind a line of four ripped guns and smashed gun carriages. Sheen, it seemed, uh, had escaped destruction, but the place was silent and deserted. Here we happened on no dead, though the night was too dark for us to see into the side roads of the place. In Sheen my companion suddenly complained of faintness and thirst and we decided to try one of the houses. The first house we entered, after a little difficulty with the window, was a small semi-detached villa, and I found nothing eatable left in the place but some mouldy cheese. There was, however, water to drink, and I took a hatchet, which promised to be useful in our next housebreaking.
1: That was sometime after the invasion, though, wasn't it? (laughs) That was um, after we got back into the
0: the... swing of things. I've crunched the timeline for this. And it's been less than two weeks, like, since the Martians arrived. <laughs> so it's, it's taken him less than two weeks to start. He, he has taken to housebreaking more than he took to the idea of needing food <laughs> on a kid. Like, somebody, somebody had to explain that to him. This, he's a natural. Yeah, of course I need a, I need a, a, a hatchet. Obviously I need a hatchet. How else am I going to break into a house? We then cross to a place where the road turns towards Mortlake. Here there stood a white house within a walled garden. And in the pantry of this domicile we found a store of food. Two loaves of bread and a pan, an uncooked steak, and the half of a ham. That is the food, not the town.
1: It could be Peter's still, though, we don't know.
0: Yeah, there's no, he's not, he's not said whether it's Peter's
1: ham. Peter will be furious, but that's why he's got the hatchet, in case he needs to defend himself.
0: (laughs) I give this catalogue so precisely because, as it happened... We were destined to subsist upon this store for the next fortnight. Bottle beer stood under a shelf and there were two bags of haricot beans and some limp lettuces. Now I don't know about you but I always find that if you're gonna have lettuce you want it limp. Nice limp lettuce. This pantry opened into a kind of wash-up kitchen and in this was firewood. There was also a cupboard in which we found nearly a dozen of burgundy, tinned soups and salmon, and two tins of biscuits. We sat in the adjacent kitchen in the dark, for we dared not strike a light, and ate bread and ham, and drank beer out of the same bottle. As we know, he's a big fan of dining with men on his own in strange houses, whilst being a married man that he says he's keen to get back to.
1: Well, this is like um, the Homer's phobia episode of The Simpsons, where Marge says about John he prefers the company of men, and Homer says, who doesn't?
0: He's a funny man, the narrator. (laughs) The curate, who was still timorous and restless, was now, oddly enough, for pushing on. And I was urging him to keep up his strength by eating when the thing happened that was to imprison us. It can't be midnight yet, I said. And then came a blinding glare of vivid green light. Everything in the kitchen leaped out, clearly visible in green and black, and vanished again and then followed such a concussion as I have never heard before or since. So close on the heels of this, to seem instantaneous, came a thud behind me. A clash of glass, a crash, and rattle of falling masonry all about us, and the plaster of the ceiling came down upon us, smashing into a multitude of fragments upon our heads. I was knocked headlong across the floor against the oven handle and stunned. I was insensible for a long time, the curate told me. And when I came to, we were in darkness again. And he, with a wet face, as I found out afterwards with blood from a cut forehead, was dabbing water over me. For some time, I could not recollect what had happened. Then things came to me slowly. A bruise on my temple asserted itself. Are you better? asked the curate in a whisper. At last, I answered him. I sat up.
1: Don't move, he said. The floor is covered with smashed crockery from the dresser. You can't possibly move without making a noise. And I fancy they are outside.
0: We both sat quite silent, so that we could scarcely hear each other breathing. Everything seemed deadly still. But once something near us, some plaster or broken brickwork, slid down with a rumbling sound. Outside and very near was an intermittent, metallic rattle. That said the curate when it presently happened again. Yes, I said. But what is it?
2: A Martian,
0: said the curate. I listened again. I mean, no fucking shit. <laughs> Why are you even asking what it is? What? What? So, of, of course it's a Martian. What else? Oh, no, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a dolphin from the Thames. Nature's return. I think it's an orchestra. I can hear it. It was not like the Hebrew, I said and for a time I was inclined to think one of the great fighting machines had stumbled against the house, as I had seen one stumble against the tower of Shepparton Church. Our situation was so strange and incomprehensible that for three or four hours, until the dawn came, we scarcely moved, and then the light filtered in, not through the window, which remained black, but through a triangular aperture between a beam and a heap of broken bricks in the wall behind us. The interior of the kitchen we now saw greyly for the first time. The window had been burst in by a mass of garden mould, which flowed over the table upon which we had been sitting and lay about our feet. Outside, the soil was banked high against the house. At the top of the window frame we could see an uprooted drain pipe. The floor was littered with smashed hardware. The end of the kitchen towards the house was broken into, and since the daylight shone in there, it was evident the greater part of the house had collapsed. Contrasting vividly with this ruin was the neat dresser, stained in the fashion, pale green, and with a number of copper and tin vessels below it. The wallpaper imitating blue and white tiles, and a couple of coloured supplements fluttering from the walls above the kitchen range.
1: It sounds like a really nice house. This is this has turned into a catalogue now. I quite like it.
0: Well, I'd I'd live here. Sounds all right. You yeah, know, it's these... okay, isn't it? I mean, apart from the cave-in, that's obviously some structural issues that I would... Uh... No, 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 I'd, I'd,
1: I'd bring my whingeing curate to this house. <laughs> this would be lovely. Lovely place to set up a family with your yeah. curate. Now, can you be an estate agent trying to sell this house but completely broken? That's the question. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's, lo- it's lovely and open, uh, isn't it? Right. <laughs> you know,
0: you can't say better than open plan. There's a lot of green in the property, as you can mm-hmm. see from the moss. That shows that this is a great place for life. Perfect for the living. That's why we call it the living room. Yes, there's a cooker in there, but don't let it stop you. Who doesn't want to watch telly whilst frying a pizza? That's what I say. I am a human. There's even a little cubby there with a triangular bit of light for your curate to live in. As the dawn grew clearer, we saw through the gap in the wall the body of a Martian, standing sentinel, I suppose, over the still glowing cylinder. At the sight of that, we crawled as circumspectly as possible out of the twilight of the kitchen and into the darkness of the scullery. Abruptly, the right interpretation dawned upon my mind. "'The fifth cylinder,' I whispered. "'The fifth shot from Mars has struck this house and buried us under the ruins.' For a time, the curate was silent, and then he whispered,
1: God have mercy upon us.
0: I heard him presently whimpering to himself. Save for that sound, we lay quite still in the scullery. I, for my part, scarce dared breathe, and sat with my eyes fixed upon the faint light of the kitchen door. I could just see the curate's face, a dim, oval shape, and his collar and cuffs. Outside there began a metallic hammering, then a violent hooting, and then again, after a quiet interval, a hissing like the hissing of an engine. Like an owl trying to start a motorbike, is what I'm trying. <laughs> in my uh, notes, for what that's going to sound like, it's like... These noises, for the most part problematic, continued intermittently, and seemed, if anything, to increase in number as time wore on. Presently, a measured thudding and a vibration that made everything about us quiver, and the vessels in the pantry ring and shift, began and continued. Once the light was eclipsed, and the ghostly kitchen doorway became absolutely dark. For many hours we must have crouched there, silent and shivering, until our tired attention failed. At last I found myself awake and very hungry. I'm inclined to believe we must have spent the greater portion of a day before that awakening... My hunger was at a stride so insistent that it moved me to action. I told the curate I was going to seek food, and felt my way towards the pantry. He made me no answer. But so soon as I began eating, the faint noise I made stirred him up, and I heard him crawling after me. Mamma Mia. It's, uh, bloody tense. I'm sure that's what... That's what the narrator's thinking. Uh, he's thinking, "Mamma Mia." Uh, well, there we go, guys. I mean, thank you very much for Tom for coming on. Uh, if, if you've enjoyed his his outlook on life, well, he runs a podcast. He's, he's done two series of it, "Into the Archives" with Peter Fleming. He looks after a fantastic character called Peter Fleming, who is a a, 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 a children's TV producer, um, and and this is a podcast where he tries to to find old old footage of his, his shows it's very funny it's great i highly recommend it also please you know if you've enjoyed this let me know get in touch with me on twitter instagram facebook it's edy hearst on all of those please do like review and share this podcast as i said before with book two we very much wish to bash it um we will be back we're gonna be back every other week uh on a wednesday change to the wednesday so let's see how that goes uh we're on next week it is chapter two what we saw from the ruined house See you in a couple of weeks, guys. It's great to be back. Thank you for listening.